Hello, I'm Rob Wolf, and this is New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is my 16th podcast as your host. Remember, if you've been enjoying what you hear, to tell your friends, like our Facebook page, and post a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever program you use to listen to podcasts. I am super happy to have as my guest today Claire North, author of the bestseller, The First 15 Lives of Harry August, which was a reader favorite on Goodreads and recommended on several book club lists in Great Britain. And she's also the author of Touch, a novel with an occult twist that just came out in February. Claire North is actually a pseudonym for Catherine Webb, who has published eight young adult novels under her own name, the first of which, Mirror Dreams, she wrote when she was only 14. Wow. That earned her the sobriquet Young Trailblazer of the Year by the magazine Cosmo Girl UK, and she's also published six novels under the name Kate Griffin. So let me welcome Catherine Claire Kate North Webb Griffin to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Um, So my first question has to be, who shall I call you today? Oh, let's go with Kat. Um, I've been Claire for about a year. I've been Kate Griffin for a lot longer than that. And people still say, hello, Claire. Hello, Kate. And I just stand there like a potato going, "Uh, oh, me. Right. Yeah. So let's go with the name I'm most likely to respond to. Okay. So Kat, very good. So let me ask you about the pen names. I mean, are they mainly for marketing purposes or is it about communicating expectations to specific audiences? Because I know Kate Griffin writes fantasy for adults usually. And as Catherine Reb, you write, have written for young adults. I guess I was really actually wondering based on uh, the subject of both the first 15 lives of Harry August and Touch, you know, I'm wondering if the different names are actually about how you feel. In other words, do you feel like a Kate when you're writing one book and like a Claire or Catherine when you're writing another? I think it's a mixture of everything, really. Um, there is a degree of, I, I, I suppose you could call it marketing. I, I, I think it's it's fairer to say it's about Yes, distinguishing different readerships in a way, because Catherine Webb was very much young adult. And when I became Kate Griffin, it was openly stated that I was also Catherine Webb. But it was a way of making it clear that younger readers might not enjoy the new books. And then the same thing with Claire North. It's a way of saying, look, I am, I have written all these books that went before, but also these books are now very different. You may like them, you may not. It's it's an easy way of kind of just making it clear that there's a genre move happening. Um and it, it's it's almost easier than doing covers. It's just it's a very clear statement of there has been a change. And in terms of writing the books, I mean, it's very hard to say. I always just feel like me whenever I do anything. Everyone always throughout their lives says, I feel like me. It's just one of those truths. I'm aware that this, when I read it back, there's a very different style happening between the different names. I'm not necessarily aware consciously of a decision to write in a different style. I'm aware of a different story, perhaps, that's being told by each voice, if that makes sense. But the story has its own logic. I kind of just let that do the work. And then I'm surprised when I turn around to discover that Kate Griffin sounds very different from Claire North. Maybe we should explain to listeners who might be unfamiliar with your books a little bit about, maybe we could start with Harry August, about the book and the character, you know, the title tells us that Harry's had 15 lives already, so he's obviously an unusual person. Um, I expected when I picked up the book for it to be about someone who's reincarnated after death into someone of the next generation, but there's something entirely different going on, and I was hoping you could explain a little of that uh, to listeners. 
Yeah, totally. Um, so Harry August is reincarnated in a sense, but he's always reincarnated as himself. So he's born um, 1918, 1919, literally on the cusp of those two years. And he lives a full and happy life. And he, well, happy-ish. And he dies in kind of the 1980s, 1970s. And when he dies, he's born again. But he's born again exactly where he started, as himself, as a baby, on New Year's Day, back where he began. But he has the memories of the life he's lived before. And he does this over and over again, um, which is both liberating because he can go through his childhood knowing everything that's going to happen in coming events because he's already lived it. But it's also horrendous because he can be five years old on his 11th life, being treated like a five-year-old, living in exactly the same house he's always lived in with exactly the same people, knowing everything they're going to do and being forced to relearn his ABC, even though he's actually hundreds of years old. So it, it is, in a way, a reincarnation novel. It's just a reincarnation novel where you're reincarnated as the same person. Well, I really think it's so clever because you had to think through, as any author does when creating a character, but you know, you've know, you created this very specific scenario for this kind of reincarnated person, and, and you refer to them as Kalachakras. Yeah. And there are others, Harry goes on to discover that he's not the only one like this, uh, but you've had to think through what their common shared experiences might be. And, and one thing that's interesting is pretty universally in their second life, it's kind of the worst life they lead, I think. They all kind of have a horrible experience, mainly because they, they feel like they're going crazy when they wake up back into the same space with the same body, with the memories of a, of a previous life. Again, it was about what made sense. I think if you had just died and then to find yourself back as a child again, it's not merely the trauma of you can remember dying. I think it would be the trauma of everything you've invested any meaning in in the life that went before suddenly becomes meaningless. If you were married, then that relationship suddenly hasn't happened. It suddenly had no meaning. If you were proud of the things you've achieved, they've no longer existed. They have been wiped from history. Um, because you're back in 1918, the things you did in the future had no consequence. And also there was, again, just the trauma of, you know, you're going to have to go through potty training again. You're going to have to go through puberty again. And I think there's also the frustration that no one's going to listen to a word you say. If you're six years old and you're turning around going, I think maybe that Hitler chap might cause a few problems, people are just going to point and laugh at you. I think it, the second life would absolutely be horrifying. And it makes a certain logical sense that even the most resilient of minds would start to crack under that. That makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, you create a culture, really, for the Kala Chakra, where they develop their own kind of ethos for living. You know, it seems like there would be a tendency in the framework that you've just described to have great apathy, because at some point, as you say, you feel like nothing matters, that you know they live a whole life, and whether they've done good, they've done bad, it all gets erased. And they get to start over. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. I think they are, in many ways, very apathetic. And certainly, I think certainly Harry August's character is, is pretty apathetic, not necessarily towards fellow Kalachakra, not necessarily towards people of his own kind, because they will remember what he does. But he's fairly apathetic towards people he meets who die and aren't reincarnated, or who certainly don't remember everything that he's done, in the sense that... He can say something vile to someone and it will be erased. He can kill someone and it will be erased. And it becomes very hard, I think, to have an ethical framework that conforms to everyone else's ethical framework, 
when you you live in that environment and all the morals and the laws and the ethics by which normal human beings live suddenly seem very tiny and rather daft. I also think apathy comes in the sense that if you are born in 1918 and you die in 1980, say, then you'll have seen the Beatles, you'll have seen the rise of the feminist movement, you'll have seen Vietnam, you'll have seen man walking on the moon. And so when you die and go back to 1918, the values of that time are going to see frankly laughable. And again, the things that you would have invested in your first life, the ethics you would have stood by, the things you would have believed in, suddenly seem ridiculous. And again, I think that dents how you regard the world around you. I think one of the remarkable things is that despite their relationship to the traditional world or the conventional world, those of us who aren't Kala Chakra, they develop their own kind of ethos where they do value something. And I think you hinted at that when you said that Harry feels differently towards his fellow Kala Chakra, but they do take care of each other, which is very interesting. I mean, they, in, in essence, you've created a new, you've imagined for them uh, a new culture and a way with which they regard each other that that has its own kind of moral consistency and balance, I think. Yes, I think that there is a degree of that, but I think it's also to a degree just a pure survival thing in the sense that they do look after each other and they do care for each other and they will engage in relationships with each other. But you know, you, you could marry another Kalachakra, but you will do that in full knowledge that when you die, they will die. And it might be 20, 30 years after your death between you being reborn until you meet again. And so even kind of even long term loving relationships are dented. I think there's there's a society based on a sort of mutual need with the Kalachakra. I think there's a mutual need to help each other simply because the difficulties of what they're going through, both the practical difficulties of how do you cope with being five and having the knowledge of centuries of of living in you, but also kind of the emotional difficulties of how do you go through life seeing everyone you've known dying and knowing they're going to die and knowing what's going to happen and knowing you that you could try and change but won't make a difference. How do you cope with that? So I think they do form a society, but I, I think it's quite a practical one. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a very ethical one per se. It's ethics, I think, are the, the ethics of need. Was it a challenge for you then in this context to come up with a, with really a storyline? I mean, in a world like this where their values and their motivation, you know, a character like Harry's motivation is very different from our own. I mean, you in fact do come up with, with a very urgent uh, problem that he needs to solve. But I wondered if it was hard to find when you, when you create a world in which the um, predominant theme or, or feeling might be apathy, you know, that nothing really matters. And yet something really does matter to him. And I'm not, I'm not going to just say what it is so readers can be motivated unless, unless you want to. Um, but, uh, but he is really, you do find something that, that drives him. I think, I think it's, it's a truth for pretty much every book written in, uh, of every genre that the most exciting stories are the ones that push hardest against what a character is comfortable with. So if Harry August is comfortable leading a fairly apathetic life where he just essentially plays tourist with all of time and just wanders through the 20th century going, oh yeah, remember that, I'll go and have sushi now. It, like If he's got that level of being there, done that, apathy, disinterest in humanity, then what makes the most interesting story is a thing that pushes against that. And so the challenge was finding... Not necessarily the thing that pushes. The thing that pushes is 
in many ways the opposite of apathy. You, you, you insert characters with passion and commitment and belief, characters who are equal in terms of everything they can do to Harry August, but who stand diametrically opposed to him. But also the story then comes out of the fact that actually the opposite of apathy is very appealing. So you have a main character in the form of Harry August who is quite apathetic and then is faced with someone wildly enthusiastic and passionate and determined to change the world. And Harry has the dilemma of, well, actually, that's a very appealing thing. That's, That's a very exciting thing. But unfortunately, it's also a thing that could destroy not just my lifestyle, but also the lives of everyone around me. So the story kind of, it sort of springs up naturally from finding the thing that is opposed to the obvious, if that makes sense. It springs up from finding the thing that the character himself will find most difficult. And I'm not sure I can say much more than that without completely blowing the plot. Right. I think you get to the heart of it. And I guess one thing is that the Kala Chakra kind of have grown up with or or evolved as an ethos to not interfere too much in the course of events. So something pushing against that would create a a certain alarm bells for someone who isn't normally alarmed by anything, because even if he gets murdered, it's not really that alarming because he just starts over again. Yes. So on the few occasions when he is murdered, which does happen every now and then in the book, his usual reaction is, oh, no, not puberty again. Um, it's, It's a tedious inconvenience being killed. Um, and not actually the thing that frightens him the most. There are things that frighten him a lot more than death. And and suicide is an interesting solution to a problem too, which is not normally in our world considered a, a reasonable or rational solution. In his existence, it's a perfectly rational way to, to extricate yourself from a situation you might not feel comfortable with. Yes, yeah. I, and it, it was kind of a funny one writing about because on the one hand, it, it makes perfect sense that if you are faced with either a very long or lingering death or a risk of something happening to you that could damage your mind, um, all sorts of possibilities that are to Harry August more frightening than death, then, of course, suicide becomes a business-like thing. It becomes a, oh, thank goodness, let's reset the universe button. Um, It is kind of awkward because one of the downsides of Harry is that because when he dies to him, the universe resets, we never quite know whether there's a parallel universe in which he has killed himself and his body is gently cooling on a hospital bed. We never know whether there's a universe he's left behind, if that makes sense, whether there's consequences to his action that he simply does not perceive. Because the story follows his story and because he doesn't think there's any consequences, we as readers never quite find out whether actually there is. And suicide is a horrific subject to think about as just normal human beings. Um, And part of that horror is the question of how the ones who are left behind live with it. Um, And Harry's very blasé attitude towards, ah, I'm in a spot of bother, suicide, doesn't deal at all with the fact that there might be a universe that poodles on afterwards. Right, right. And actually, you got me thinking about, uh, as I was reading it, the fact that all the people around him are, who are not Kala Chakra, in essence, they are being reincarnated too. They just don't have a memory that they are getting another... I mean, he's seeing the various people in his life play out slightly different variations each time. That His aunts and uncles, his you know, loved ones, to the extent that he has them in his various lives. Uh, but they just don't realize that this is the 10th time they they or or their spirit or it's never really described but 
is doing this thing. And I, I thought that was interesting, too. It was really the difference between them was the lack of awareness or connection between the lives. Well, there, there's one of there's one of several possibilities. But the two that frighten Harry are, yes, exactly that, that everyone in the universe is reincarnating. It's only a tiny minority who can remember what's happened. And that's in many ways quite a bleak universe because that implies that nothing ever changes, that you're just stuck in an endless cycle of repetitious actions and that really nothing you do matters, like not even for the Kalachakra, but not even for us. We are almost irrelevant in that scenario because if I die and I'm reborn as myself but I can't remember, that seems like an unbelievably futile existence for the entire species to live in, which is a depressing thought in and of itself. But then... The other possibility which Harry is interested in and wants to try and learn about is maybe humanity isn't being incarnated. Maybe when he dies, it's not a question of he's going back in time to where he began, but he's almost moving to a parallel universe and starting again in a parallel universe. And that's in many ways more comforting because it implies that even though he's going to be perpetually stuck in this cycle, somewhere there is a universe he has affected and time does continue to move forward in that universe and his actions have had consequences. And he finds that a slim glimmer of optimism in the way he views the world. Well, let me tell you, it, when I was reading it, I it made me feel I was in a good mood because anything that happened to me, I thought, oh, maybe that didn't happen to me in another life. Like if a puddle <laughs> splashed on me, I thought, well, maybe maybe I, I that didn't happen to me last time around. I just don't remember it. It is an appealing thought, isn't it? The idea of going back, starting again and getting it right. Like that that's that's something we've always, I think, briefly fantasized about. Whenever things go wrong, that's the moment of oh, I wish I could go back and set it right. Um, I just think in the form of Harry August, it's a very extreme kind of going back and setting it right he finds himself lumbered with, and one that grows grey very fast. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, regret is such an insidious emotion and feeling and so hard to deal with. So if you if you, you wouldn't have to have regret if you knew that you could always go back and redo the thing that you regretted doing. You wouldn't unless no matter how much you tried, it never got better. I think that there, there's a, a potential with the Kalachakra to regret the fact that nothing they do changes anything. And, and that's probably the most apathetic thought of all, but that has happy moments too. <laughs> yes, and it's a very enjoyable read. So let me, let me, let's move on to touch, but I'll leave that thought there that I actually found it, I, I felt it was kind of hopeful in the end, at least I found it as a, as a non-Kala Chakra as far as I know, although who knows, maybe this is my fir first life. I think Harry chooses the most human and most humane outcome at the end is my hope. But anyway, yes, moving on. <laughs> Moving on, let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about um, touch, which you know I see a connection between the two books. This is your new book that came out in February, and it seems to explore something similar, but also from a very different direction. So rather than reliving the same life over and over, the main character seems to be living one continuous existence, or maybe I should just say one continuous consciousness, but with the assistance of almost countless different people. And if that sounds mysterious, I think I'll hand it over to you to just maybe give listeners a brief introduction to the main character of Touch, who is a character named Kepler. Okay, so um, Kepler, I'm going to call it it because I go to great lengths in the book not to say what its original gender was, or indeed what its original name was. So forgive me there. Um, Kepler is a human, 
who died a fair old while ago, but at the moment of death, its skin touched the skin of the person who was killing it, and its consciousness moved into that body. Um, And since then, Kepler can possess anybody it touches by physical touch. It doesn't get the memories of that body, so there's many an awkward instant where we'll jump into a body and go, hello, I appear to be someone and we'll spend uh, several awkward minutes desperately trying to find out what its own name is and you know whether it's got asthma and whether it's got friends or whether it's wearing comfortable shoes kepler is constantly frustrated by how many people it jumps into wearing uncomfortable shoes right or it finds out that it is pregnant or has athlete's foot at one point (laughs) exactly and kepler's reached kepler can move bodies so easily that it will it will discriminate based on things like athlete's foot or whether it's got a dodgy left elbow simply because it can be anyone and it doesn't care what gender it is particularly it, it chooses bodies it, it uses the word beautiful to describe the bodies it chooses but it's not necessarily a kind of physical social definition of beauty but it's a beauty that Kepler perceives in kind of a wholeness of identity it jumps into those bodies that it thinks will have the most amazing lives and being in that body Kepler, again, having no possessions of its own, having no friends of its own, having no body of its own, will immediately turn around and start to behave the way it thinks that body should behave. Um, And sometimes it can do a fairly good impression of that body. And sometimes, as occasionally in the book, it completely messes up its impression of the body and just stands going, oh, right, got that wrong. But it lives. It's the definition of vicarious living that Kepler does. And in many ways, it is monstrous in, in many ways. Kepler is a thief and a slaver who steals people's lives. But Kepler is also in a way quite joyous because it looks at humanity with this wide open eye of, wow, you look fabulous and your life looks amazing and you are the most beautiful person I've ever seen. And it it's, has a, a sort of love for everything and everyone it sees because it's so excited by the idea of what your life might be and how it might live it. And it's made a career of doing favors or being hired out to actually help people do things that they themselves would not want to do or couldn't do. Yes, it, it used to be um, it used to be an estate agent, which meant sometimes it meant finding bodies for others, others of its kind that wanted a body, early 30s, degree from Harvard for this purpose or that purpose. Um, but sometimes it also meant, for example, becoming a witness in a court case. So someone has seen a crime but is too afraid to testify. Kepler would become that person and go into the courtroom and say the words or Kepler would fire someone because the boss just doesn't have the heart to fire them but knows they need to be fired. But if the body says the words, it's still just as good. So Kepler would become the body for the purpose of doing the job. Which again, Kepler enjoyed doing. Kepler enjoys being all these different people but also doesn't have the emotional connection with any of these people's lives that firing someone or spitting up with a lover or going to battle means much to it. So tell me if I'm wrong, but I I see certain commonalities between Kepler and Harry August, one of which is that they have obviously a very unique perspective on human society and culture because they've both lived for hundreds of years. And their continuous life, the fact that they can live so long, kind of puts them a little bit, I mean, they have the capacity to have less at stake in any one moment. And I just, I clearly, it seems to me anyway, that it's, uh, that's the kind of character you're interested in, as someone who sort of stands apart and can take a really broad perspective look on human existence. Yes, I think, I think that's probably 
fair. Um, I think Kepler and Harry, yes, they, they, they do both stand apart and they do both look at the world in a very different way. But that said, they both are also very much within the world. Harry, for example, even on his sixth, seventh, eighth life, will marry someone who's not a Kalachakra because he likes normality. He likes that going home. He likes that you know, having a companion in his old age. And he will love that person. He absolutely will because in many ways he's a very ordinary human. He doesn't do much extraordinary until circumstances force him to. The only thing extraordinary about him is the fact that he can't die properly. Whereas Kepler... Kepler can never settle down, really. Kepler finds it impossible to settle down because it's so used to jumping bodies that the second a body it's wearing will get a splinter, Kepler's gone rather than deal with the pain. Kepler has never been to the dentist in its entire life because Kepler just finds the idea horrendous. So Kepler flits from body to body and results use bodies differently. But on the other hand, because it, it doesn't have a life of its own, it's also very, very involved in the lives of others. It, it will jump into a body and go, wow, I have an iPod. I must listen to all of the music on this iPod because my body likes this music. So I must like this music. And so it gets very integrated into the life it's living. So they are, they are in their different ways outside society, but they are also, if anything, kind of desperate to be part of it. If, almost as if their separation makes them want to be more a part of it than they otherwise might be. I think. In Touch, so the main character is named Kepler, and there's a antagonist named Galileo. And I, I don't know if that was just, you know, for fun, or if there's some meaning behind picking those two names. No, no, there wasn't really meaning behind it. I think they're good names. And in fairness to Kepler, neither Kepler nor Galileo picked their names. Their names were picked for them by an organization that wants to see them both dead. They are code names. Kepler at one point is asked, what is your name? And Kepler just stands there going, I don't think it's very important now. And there's hopefully a slight sense when it says that, that A, its original name isn't important, but B, it's been such a long time since it had any name other than the name of the body it wears. It's almost struggling to remember who it once was. So the names Kepler and Galileo were given to them, and they are... They're in many ways quite, to me, they're quite lovely names because I associate them with the wonders of the universe. Um, and I quite like names that associate with the wonders of the universe then being tied up in a somewhat monstrous thriller chase. Absolutely. No, I like the names too. Absolutely. Well, obviously, you like different names because you have a few yourself. So. <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you actually about the fact that I understand that you have a job also, or it's, it's your day job, um, maybe you could explain, but in the theater. And the theater gets me thinking about people playing different roles and different parts. And I just wonder if that isn't also an extension of these kinds of characters, because obviously a novelist is always trying on new characters. But then these two characters that, you, that you're writing about are themselves trying on new characters. It's sort of like a meta. You're, you're very immersed in a world of actors being different characters and your characters being different characters. I admit, I had, I, I had not even thought about that. I will go away and think about that after this. Um, I, I work as a theatre lighting designer, so I'm not hugely involved with actors unless they're outside their light, at which point I get very involved very fast with short words. But I, I am... I'm one of the people who spends a lot of time sat in the darkness watching what goes on in a rehearsal room and watching the stage and trying to find ways to make stories on the stage 
better's the wrong word, but trying to trying to find a different way to tell a story happening on a stage. And I love doing it. And I, I hadn't even begun to think about how that related to the books. I do theatre lighting design partly because I love it, because I love doing theatre, because I love plays, because I love the part of my brain that gets turned on by doing lighting design. I love doing the numbers and the colours and the angles and you know, the practical, actual work that goes into it, which is very different from writing. But it's also a, a job that involves stories, so in that sense it ties up. But to be honest, I also love doing it because it gets me out of the house. I think writers probably need a reason to get out of the house more often than might come up otherwise. And it's a good way of putting your life in perspective. There's something about that moment at 11 o'clock on a Sunday night when you're trying to rig a light that weighs more than you do. And there's a director stood underneath you going, oh, yeah, can you make that more red? And you're just like, you know what? This does put my ego into perspective, doesn't it? This this. Yeah, I'm not going to go home tomorrow and complain that a chapter came difficult after tonight. So that's why I do it. And I, I admit I hadn't thought about its effect on the writing too much. I'm aware that everything I see and everything I do will always affect everything I write. This is just a truth of life. This is a truth of humanity. Everything everyone sees and does always affects them, whether you're aware of it or not. And I feel a bit embarrassed about having not thought about that more now. Sorry. Well, it always feels good when an interviewer asks a question that the, the interviewee didn't expect. Yeah, no, amazing. My brain, slightly blown. Basically, my last question, or my penultimate question, is how is it that you are so prolific, really? I mean, you've got so much going on and you've written so many books. I mean, not that there's ever a secret but um, are you just very disciplined and you write X amount of hours every day or? I'm not hugely disciplined. I, I, I write when I want to write in the sense that I, I always believe if you write when you want to, you'll write better words. And when I want to, I tend to write quite intensely. It tends to just kind of keep churning on. I think the fact I do theatre actually makes it easier to write in the sense that I don't spend months on end desperately trying to get words down I can spend a few weeks doing theatre and by the time I finished with theatre all the ideas that I may have been thinking about for a book will have had a bit of quiet churn over time it can you know gently seep through my brain while doing something else so when I come to sitting down and writing it's actually much easier because the groundwork's kind of already been laid um so in many ways I think having two jobs probably in a way makes it easier to do two jobs if that makes sense I guess the other thing is I, I um, I'm an only child, so when I was younger, you know, I, I wrote a lot because it was fun, um, and my life revolved around the local library and writing stuff. And these days, I think I've just got into the habit of writing. It's it's the thing I do, and it's the thing I've done for so many years now. It's just it's kind of relaxing, it kind of makes me happy, and 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 feels like a holiday. It feels like the thing you do when you're not stuck in a theatre on a Sunday night, lifting a light that weighs more than you. So I think that makes it quite easy. And I think I, I, I hate to use the word privileged, but I think my life is quite privileged because I get to do two things that I love and I love them enough now that it feels not like work, which makes everything go faster. Well, sounds absolutely fantastic. What are you working on now? I am in the process of editing down the third Claire North book, um, which I think is a bit too long at the moment. I don't really like long books. Um, so I'm in the process of editing that down. And what can I tell you about that? It's the story of an international jewel thief, amongst other things, who no one can remember. Um, and it's told from her point of view. She has the slight problem that 
people always seem to forget her no matter where she goes. So I'm editing that down. There's also three novellas due for publication in ebook format. I'm not quite sure what the date on that is, but sometime soon, I think. And I'm in the process of copy editing them. So lots of editing right now, which I used to hate and now I quite enjoy because my attitude towards copy editing is, ah, if it doesn't work, let's delete it, which is actually quite nice. Sounds very liberating. That's wonderful. It's like starting a new life over. <laughs> I hope so. Well, thank you very, very much for, uh, for chatting with me this, what for me is the afternoon and what for you, I guess, is the early evening in, in London. It is a very grey, overcast evening, possibly threatening a storm, which I would love. Oh, you like storms. Well, it we had snow yesterday, but it melted today, so... Ah, rubbish. I love thunderstorms. Well, then I hope you have one tonight. Thank you very much. So I've had the pleasure of talking with Catherine Webb, who, as Claire North, is the author of The First 15 Lies of Harry August and the new novel Touch. You can listen to more podcasts at our website, www.newbooksinsciencefiction.com or on iTunes and other podcasting apps. Please leave a review of the podcast if you are so inclined. That'll help others have a chance to listen to authors like Claire North and learn about their books. You can find New Books in Science Fiction and Fantasy on Facebook and on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi. I'm Rob Wolf. Follow me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books. Our logo is by Michael Thibodeau, theme music by Michael Aaron, and the editor of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe. And next month, I'll be speaking with Ken Liu, who translated the Chinese science fiction novel The Three-Body Problem and is himself a winner of Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards. And his debut novel, The Grace of Kings, just came out. So we'll be talking to him about both the challenge of translating a book as well as writing one from scratch. Again, I'm Rob Wolf. Thanks for listening.